Father, we thank you this morning because you are great. And Lord, you are greatly to be praised. And we give you glory, Lord, for being such an amazing God. And Lord, we confess that we don't understand. We don't even begin to understand how great you are. We just know that you are great beyond our wildest imagination. And Lord, we know what you have promised us as your people. And Father God, we know what that means is awaiting us. When we say goodbye to this life, Lord, the glory that you have prepared, the opportunity that we will spend all of eternity enjoying will be to plumb the depths of your greatness. And so we thank you. We thank you for your perfect word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to peer inside, to see a glimpse of you. Now, God, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear, that our hearts might be prepared to receive what you have for us. And Lord God, that you change us. Change us as your word intends to change us today. We're yours. You take us, Father, and do what only you can do. We thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, praise the Lord. Let's get our Bibles out and uh, open to Galatians chapter 3. We're back in our study of Galatians. Galatians 3, you can find that in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 1339. So you can just grab that Bible, open to 1339, or open your Bible to the book of Galatians. Uh, We have been studying for several months through Galatians. We've had a little bit of time off uh, for various things that we've been celebrating as a church, and then also through our celebration of uh, the resurrection of Christ at Easter. And so now we're able to come back. And it's been good for us to take a break because the book of Galatians is so high. It's so monumental in, in what it does, what it means in our lives that really uh, I think it's all in the sovereignty of God that we had a moment to just take a breath, step back, let everything that we've heard in the first two chapters settle in and now uh, come back around the Scripture with that which God has already shown us and really just see uh, again, afresh and anew, what a, a, a remarkable gift Galatians is to us. And so this morning, we'll be talking about the great escape. Um, you know, the Scripture says from Genesis to Revelation that that every person, every man, woman, child ever born is a is a prisoner, is in this maximum security prison cell called sin. And that there's no ability within us personally, there's no, there's no wisdom or knowledge that we have, humanly speaking, that's able to free us from the prison of sin. But God in His grace and in His mercy has given us uh, the, the opportunity for this great escape. And, and that is the message of the gospel. And we'll see that... Uh, played out this morning as we look into this passage in Galatians 3. So look in your scriptures and uh, read along with me. Galatians chapter 3. Let's start in verse 15. The Apostle Paul says to the church at Galatia, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is 
confirmed, then no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Now he does not say, and to seeds as of many, but he speaks as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say, that the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, then it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for only one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promise of God? Well, certainly not. For if there had been a law given which would have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the Scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor. It was our guardian to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, what we read there, maybe to some of you, by the time I get to the end, you just think, now, what just happened? What do we read? And I will confess to you that this is a, one of the most difficult passages in the book of Galatians. And we will see the, the beauty and simplicity of it. And, and the difficulty is not necessarily that it's difficult to understand. It's just that we're so removed from this context that it may take us a moment to, to get our heads in line, but you'll see that this is a very, very powerful, wonderful mountaintop passage of Scripture in the book of Galatians. Now, remember that Paul is writing to the church at Galatia, that Paul is a church planter, that he has come into Galatia, where the people that he encounters, that he shares the gospel with, have spent their whole life, religiously speaking, on the outside looking in that they were not afforded the luxury of knowing the God of the Bible because they are not Jews. They, they are Gentiles. And so they're on the outside looking in. They have always seen the Jews and the powerful things and heard the stories of the things that their God has done, but have never had the opportunity to know about this God until Paul comes and brings the gospel to the Gentiles. And so this remarkable transformation occurs amongst this people. That when a people who, who were once hopeless are suddenly confronted by the reality of the gospel, that there's salvation in Christ alone. That in, in no, other, no other place do you need to look. In no other God do you need to, to search. But in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. That, that you can find salvation apart from any merit of your own. Now you just have to... Stop and just think that we, we just say that and just think, well, amen, yes, we know that. But my goodness, imagine how this place had been turned upside down by that truth. 
I mean, just remember, I, the book of Galatians causes me to constantly go back and remember my conversion experience and remember what it was like for the very first time to, to breathe this sigh of relief to know that God was my heavenly father and that my sins had been forgiven and what a remarkable reality that was. And that's what has happened here, that, that they have, have heard from the apostle Paul that Jesus plus Nothing equals everything. That it's Jesus and Jesus alone. That you don't have to, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to conform to any legalistic rituals. You don't have to become a part of something that it's just in Christ salvation is found and that the God of the Bible has paved a way for condemned sinners to find freedom and hope and the glory of salvation. It is just remarkable. And so this is the context that we, that we start with. But then something's happened. Paul left them and they were just so exuberant about the joy of everything that they had learned. And they were just overwhelmed with all this, this great news. And so here they are, this group of young Christians. And what happens then happens now. It never changes. The enemy comes in. And false teachers begin to infiltrate their way into this uh, group of believers. Now, they're very vulnerable. They're, they're young in their faith. There's a lot of things they don't know. And they're very condemnable. You see, that's what you have to understand about these Galatians is that they're very condemnable because they're still reeling with they're trying to get the reality that, wow, this is it just seems too good to be true. And then someone comes along and says, well, you know, it, it kind of is. You don't have all the story. You, you've really got to conform to all these laws. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to honor all the ritualistic laws of the Jews. And then that way you can, you can actually be saved. That, that, you know, it really wouldn't make any sense if you just sort of wandered in and just put your faith in Christ and then, and then God would save you and then you could just do whatever you want to do. That doesn't make any sense. That can't be right. And so they get all tangled up with these Judaizers, as they're called, who who come in and start adding things to salvation. Now, several things shock me about the book of Galatians. I've said this before. One of them is is that it's shocking that this book is written to Christians. It, it almost seems like how could how could Paul need to say this to Christians? It just seems like. Certainly, he's talking to people who, who wouldn't know. I mean, if their life had been so radically turned upside down, how could they fall for this? As he says, foolish Galatians, how, who has bewitched you? Well, that's shocking. But what's even more shocking than that is that when you read the book of Galatians, it's, it's almost as if Paul was writing to the church of right now. That nothing has changed. That we still fight the same battle. And that day in and day out, I still encounter. It's remarkable. It just, it's, it breaks your heart. That right now, today, it's the same scenario. The same situation that legalism creeps into believers and that, and that, that this, this false teaching of works and merit-based salvation and it just gets all tangled up in so many different ways and it just, it's, it breaks my heart. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was having a conversation with, uh, 
a, a couple who had was just passing through town. And they had heard about our church, I don't know how, and they stopped in for worship and they stayed and uh, were in my Sunday school class and I got an opportunity to visit with them. And so I was talking to them. It's probably about a month ago, maybe five weeks ago, right after that last uh, sermon on Galatians. And so we were talking for a few minutes and uh, the gentleman said to me, he said, you know, I was just asking him about his walk with Christ. And, and you know, he was so very excited to be among us. And I could see that he had a real joy in his heart. And so I was asking him about his life. And he said, you know, there was a for a long time I had wandered away from God. And I was uh, very discouraged and despondent about God. And I said, well, do you mind me asking what happened? And he said, well, when I was young, my family was very devoted to Christ and we were involved in church and we uh, were involved in a church much like the church you were talking about today in your sermon. It was a very legalistic church and it was centered around rules and, and you were sort of graded by how well you, you followed the rules. And he said that his, his parents loved Jesus and they were just as sincere as as they could be and and but you know and they didn't know he said he growing up he didn't know that's all he'd ever known and and he said one day him and his mother were were working outside at their house and the preacher showed up unannounced uh just came to visit and um i don't know why that freaks people out it shouldn't Okay, because I'm not like what I'm about to tell you, okay? If I come to your house, I just want to tell you I love you. I mean, and, and here's another thing while we're on this topic, okay? No one, contrary to what uh, we'd all like each other to believe, nobody lives in a spotlessly clean house. You know that? And so when, you, when I know you're coming to my house, guess what we do? We clean the house. Now, that's hypocritical. What we all need to do is just embrace the fact that it's not clean and just forget all that. Because even when I come to your house and you know I'm coming and it's all clean, I know you're lying. (laughs) Right? And when you come to my house, I'm lying too. So let's just quit all that. Okay, on with the story. So the pastor shows up at their their house and uh, after he left, his mom... He said, my mom went in the bedroom and she was just weeping. She was just so brokenhearted. And he didn't know what was wrong with his mom. And he, he tried to talk to her about it and she didn't want to talk to her. And then later on, uh, he found out that the reason she was so upset was that the preacher had come to visit them and, and she was wearing shorts. And that in their church that was considered a sin for a woman to wear pants or shorts and he said that so impacted me it it just made me so confused and so i mean how my mom loves the lord i know that and that so hurt her and broke her heart and she was so condemned by that and that it, it really just sidetracked his relationship with Christ. These are the kinds of things that go on every day. Do you understand that? It's, it's these ridiculous things. And the, the thing is, is that these are well-meaning, zealous people for the most part. I, I, I'm not saying that, that they're all false teachers because they're not. 
Many of them are, are, are just as zealous and well-meaning as they, as they possibly can be. They're just wrong. But sometimes they're, they're strategically trying to harm people by bringing legalistic tendencies where they don't belong. And so it's shocking to look at the book of Galatians and to realize who it's written to and then to look at who we are as a culture and a people and how prevalent these sorts of things are in our very world. That so many of you have people that you love and care deeply about that are sort of tangled up in this. And and it's so dangerous. There's such opportunity for, for great hurt. For great hurt, because they would think, well, well, why would God do this to me or hurt me this way when it's not God at all? And so that's why Paul is so, so zealous and so concerned and so forceful in what he says. So what I want us to do is sort of break this scripture apart in a couple little pieces and understand what Paul is doing here. And the first thing is this. Paul here is using the Old Testament to make his point. He's already gone through all these various ways of explaining to the Galatians that they've been bewitched, that they're, they've been hypnotized, that they've lost track and focus of the gospel, and that if anyone tries to pervert or change the gospel, that he should be accursed. And he's gone through all of that. And now he's addressing specifically the tactics of the, the false teachers that are Judaizers, so they're using the Old Testament. They're not negating Jesus. They're not negating faith in Him. They're just trying to implement things that don't belong there. And so the first thing I want us to see, what Paul's going to do, he's going to show us the, the necessity of faith. He's going to show us that there is no salvation apart from faith, that it's always been this way and it always will be this way and that it's never changing. And he uses Abraham to illustrate this. Now, back in verse 6, which I didn't read, which we covered last time, uh, he, he quotes Genesis 15 where he says, Just as Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him as righteousness. We talked in depth about that last time. He goes on in verse 8 of chapter 3 to say, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. That's Genesis 12. That's the promise that God makes to Abraham. And so what, what Paul is doing is he's bringing the Galatians back because he, he knows that they are familiar with this uh, this argument that the Judaizers are using. And he says, Well, then let's just... Let's just use what they're using against you to prove that they're wrong. And so he goes to Abraham. He goes on in verse 9 to say, So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. He knows that these Judaizers consider Abraham to be the father of their faith, to be the great one that God initiated his contact with mankind through. Now, what do we know about Abraham? Well, we know that God came to Abraham and called Abraham to just pack up his family and to just move off. And he was from a city called Ur. And we know that that was a very metropolitan city. We also know and have excavated extensively all sorts of information about that city. We know that they were a pagan city, that they were filled with idolatry, that their their primary worship was of the moon god, Nanar, and that the, the center of town was sort of dedicated as this temple or shrine to the god of the moon. And so they even called him the king of Ur. That was his name. And, and we've, we've 
excavated artifacts, uh, little little uh, carvings of, of this God with the moon over his head and so on and so forth. But the point you need to understand is that that's who Abraham was. And that this radical God comes to this idolatrous pagan man and he intersects with his life and he makes this radical promise to him and he says, hey, listen, you're going to, you are going to, to bless the whole earth through your descendants. And Abraham's thinking, what are you talking about? I'm 99 years old. My wife's 90. We don't have an heir. We don't have a son. That's impossible. And God goes on to say that, that through your descendants, which are going to outnumber the stars in the sky, that, that the world is going to be blessed. And he, he makes this astonishing radical promise to this, this man, Abraham, who has done nothing to deserve this. He's done nothing to bring this upon himself. It's not that God was rewarding him for his faithfulness. He was worshiping a false god in, in this temple of the moon god. Then God goes further. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He seals this agreement, this promise. He wants Abraham and you and me and the world to know that he's serious about this. And so he makes a covenant. And we talked about how they took the various animals and they cut them in half and they put them on the left and the right. And then Abraham falls into a deep sleep. And then God passes through like a smoking pot through between those animals to say that if this covenant is ever broken, then may what's happened to these animals happen to me. But, but here's what I want you to see. What was Abraham doing while this covenant was being sealed? He was sleeping. He was not participating in any way. God is showing us that this is a unilateral covenant. This is God making a covenant with an unfaithful pagan because he's God. That's important information. Because you need to know how all of this began. It began with God making a promise because he's God. And he can do that with anyone whom he chooses to do that. And that's what he did with Abraham. And then he sealed the covenant on his own while Abraham was asleep. It's all God. All God. It was initiated by God. It's, it's sealed by God. Everything about it is God. Then the Bible says that it's counted to Abraham as righteousness because he believed God. So first we have grace that comes. Abraham does nothing to deserve it. God just promises. He says, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do this for the world. This is my plan because I'm God in grace. You didn't deserve it. You didn't do anything to earn it. Just grace and grace alone. Then Abraham responds in faith. And then what happens? It's counted unto him as Righteousness. So you see the picture of salvation right here from the very beginning, all the way back to, to the book of Genesis. And so Paul will say about this episode in Romans chapter 4. Paul says about uh, Abraham and God, he says, he did not, God did not waver at his promise, at the promise of God. Abraham didn't through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform. You see, he responded to God in faith and therefore it was accounted unto him for righteousness. This sinner is declared righteous because he responds to the promise of God in faith. That's what happened. And Paul is reminding the Galatians, how did we get here? We got here by the necessity of faith. And that's never changed. And that's never going to change. And so it was true then and it's true now. 
So that's the first point he's driving home into the heart of the Galatians. The second one is this. Then what is the purpose of the law? Because once you sort of reconcile with with faith and how grace came to Abraham and he responded in faith and then it was counted unto him as righteousness. Well, then the next logical question is, well, then why the law? Why the law? Well, why was that? Why couldn't we just continue the way Abraham had had sort of went? Well, we'll go back to Galatians three. Look at verse 17. Paul says in this, I say. That the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. That it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law. So in other words, if the blessing of God is of the law, then it is no longer a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, now let me just explain verse 18 to you for a second. If I say to you, that I will give you a thousand dollars. All you have to do is believe that I'm going to give you a thousand dollars and I'll give you a thousand dollars. So you believe I give you a thousand dollars. I just give it to you by grace. It's just a gift. You see, that's a gift. Now, what Paul's saying is that if it comes by law, then it's really not a promise. In other words, if I say to you, I'll give you a thousand dollars, but all you have to do is paint my house. All you have to do is reshingle my roof. Let me tell you about shingles. I hate shingles. That's what I learned. I learned how to praise God all week. God, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That I don't have to wake up every day and look at shingles. And I will pray and thank God every time I pass a house and I see some men up there working, I'll say, God, bless them. Because that is a job. So here's the thing. If I say to you, you got to paint my house or re-roof my house and I'll give you a thousand dollars. Well, fine. Then you do it and I give you a thousand dollars. But it's not a gift now, is it? No. Paul's saying that if, if the promise comes by the law, well, then it's not a promise. Then you earned it. So then don't call it a promise. Because if, if you have to do something to get something, then that's not a gift. That's not grace. That's not a promise. That's a transaction. And so they're trying to make salvation a transaction. And Paul's saying, no, no, it's not a transaction at all. Now, back to verse 17. So Paul points out to them that it's 430 years later that Moses receives the the law from God. 430 years after Abraham, the law comes. Now, that's important information. He's pointing that out for a reason. So let's just revisit what happened 430 years later from Exodus chapter 20. When the Ten Commandments come to Moses, the mediator, the the Lord says in Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Now, notice how this begins. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall make for yourself, you shall not make for yourself any carved images, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Now, here's my question. Who does that sound like? Abraham. So the law comes 430 years later. And right off the bat, God depicts the first four of the Ten Commandments are about our relationship with God. The last six are about our relationship with each other. The very first thing out of the box God says, don't do this and this and that. Don't do what Abraham was doing. Yet Abraham, 430 years ago, was already accounted to him as righteousness. 
So therefore, it could not have come through the law. That's impossible. You see, he's just pointing out that the Judaizers have failed to study the chronology of what they're teaching. That it simply couldn't be that way. He's illustrating the fact that it's sheer grace. It's sheer grace on the part of God when he comes to Abraham and he makes this promise. And that it's the faith of Abraham in the promise of God without any knowledge of the law that brings about him being declared righteous. Now, I know what's going to happen in your minds right now. Is that as I begin to push forward from here, some of you are going to push back. Because you get antsy when I start talking about grace. When grace sort of gets unbridled and it just gets to roam free amongst us, it freaks some of you out. Because you start thinking, wait a minute, preacher. You can't just let people just go with grace. They're going to start doing all sorts of crazy things. I mean, they're going to start behaving in all sorts of immoral ways. I mean, what are we going to do? Just say that everything is acceptable and it's all just under grace and everything's fine and not worrying about it? Well, of course we're not going to do that. But we're not going to live under the law either. What we're going to do is read the Bible. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to let the Bible instruct us instead of all of our human fears and all of our, you know, the mental ideas. We're just going to let the Bible instruct us. Now, what does the Bible teach us about this, uh, about grace? What does it teach us when grace comes into a life and the life responds in faith? It teaches us that every person in Scripture that encounters the unbridled grace of God and responds to that grace with faith lives a radically transformed life. Now, here's the breakdown. When you separate yourself from the Scripture and you say, well, that was them, that was, you know, super Bible people, but that doesn't work for us, you have made a catastrophic mistake. That you are just like them. That Abraham, there's nothing special about Abraham. He was just a man, just like your husband, just like your son. That Sarah was a woman, just like you. They're just people, just like you. And let me tell you what we see every single week here in this faith family. The radically transformed lives of people who have seen and experienced the grace of God and responded to that grace by faith. That's what we see all the time. You don't see people who encounter the grace of God, respond in faith, are converted and born again into the family of faith and then just go completely ballistic and start living wild, uh, you know, crazy lives because, oh, it's the grace of God. No, you might hear people say that. But here's another thing. Don't let what lost people say influence the way you think about what the Bible says about being saved. OK, did you get that? I know I've met them. I've had conversations with them. I've sat in their living room. I've sat next to their hospital beds. I've talked to multitudes of people who will say, no, I'm saved. I know I'm saved. And I say, well, okay, okay, I, 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 I get that. But let's talk about your life. Let's talk about some things. Let's talk about the way things are going. This is what the Bible says about converted people. And this doesn't appear to be what is happening in your life. And they say, well, all I know is I can do whatever I want to do and I'm forgiven. Now, that's utterly and completely ridiculous. But don't let that 
influence the way you understand Scripture. Okay? But what if we apply that mentality to everything? Here's what you would do. You would say, you would come home and you'd say, Honey, uh, I got a problem. What's the problem? Well, uh, on the way home from work today, I stopped by the casino and lost all of our savings and we're completely flat broke and I don't really know what we're going to do. To which Honey says, Excuse me? You want to run that by me one more time? You did what with all of our savings? To which you say, well, I was driving down the interstate and I saw a big sign and some lady was standing there with a big check saying, I just won $500,000. So I thought, well, if she won $5,000, I'm going to go down there and win me $5,000. You understand? That's stupid. That's like letting someone who tells you, well, I know I'm saved and I'm forgiven. I can do anything I want to and it really doesn't matter. Influence the way you understand salvation. Some of you get the CD, you'll figure that out. But I'm telling you, think about it. So what did Abraham do? He responds to this radical grace in radical obedience. Now understand something. He doesn't have the law. You got that? He doesn't know the law. He doesn't have any idea about the Ten Commandments or anything else for that matter. But he, whatever God says, he does. Radically obeys. So, Abraham, I understand this. He's not a volunteer. He's not a recruit. Abraham is not someone who's seeking after God. Abraham is is someone who is sought by this radically grace-filled God. That's who he is. And he responds to God in radical obedience by just leaving his home, packing up his family, going off to somewhere that he doesn't even know where, doesn't know anything about it. He doesn't have any answers to any questions. He just does it because God said and he believed that that was God. Amen. Now, there wasn't. Do you understand? There was no one else going, Abraham. I wouldn't do that if I were you. You better make sure that you don't violate any of the rules. You better make sure that you have the right haircut. And you better make sure that you wear the right clothes. And you better make sure that you don't listen to the wrong kind of music. And whatever you do, don't dance. Because you're going to go to hell if you dance. Don't do that. And Abraham, be real careful. No one's there. God says, hey, do this. He says, yes, sir. Does it. So don't. Don't. Let the enemy get you down the path of grace that just makes everybody go crazy. That doesn't happen in the Bible, and that doesn't happen today. So if someone goes crazy, they didn't encounter the radical grace of God and respond in faith. Okay, we're clear. We got that. That's good. So then what is the point of the law? Why the law? This is a good question. Well, look at verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? Because he knows that's what they're asking. I know that's what some of you are asking. Well, then what is the point of all this? Well, Scripture says it was added because of transgressions. The Bible says that it, it, it will increase sin. Huh? Yes. Look, till the seed, he says, should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, Paul says that the law came to show us our sin. That the law is what... What illustrates to us the hopelessness of our sinfulness. 
That the law is, is like a gauge. It's like a thermometer. It doesn't affect the temperature. It just illustrates what the temperature is. That's what the law does. You see, prior to the law, there was sin. But it was sin out of just sheer ignorance. How do I know that? Because the Bible says so. Well, so look at Romans chapter 7, verse 7. This will come up on the screen. Paul says in Romans, he says, well, what then shall we say is the law sin? He's having the same conversation. Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except for the law. This is the, 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 the man who grew up as the, the great Jewish scholar. He says, I wouldn't have known that if it wouldn't have been for the law. For I, how would I have known that covetousness was wrong? If the law had not said, you shall not covet. So what I'm trying to say is that before the law comes, it's not that sin wasn't there. It's just that it wasn't illustrated. And there was no thermostat. You understand? I don't think so. Let me help you. Okay. I want you to make sure that you got this. All right. See, Chuck's out of town. And so I'm not getting any feedback. And so that makes me think that y'all are don't know what's happening. Okay. All right. When you first, all the, the little children that, that were dedicated, the beautiful children that were dedicated up here. Okay. I want you to think about how these parents respond to all these little children. These little children, when they're very small, the only thing they think about is themselves. That's all they think about. I mean, they don't care about what's going on in the world. They don't care about the economy. They don't care how you're doing. They don't care how you're feeling. They don't lay there in their crib and go, oh, mom, you got the sniffles. They don't care. They just go, change my diaper and get me a bottle. They are utterly and completely as selfish as anything could ever be in the history of the world. But we love them. And they're cute and they're special. You know why? Why does that not bother us? You never marched into the room. Not one time has Jonathan marched into the room and said, Christian, you're not going to believe it. You cannot imagine how selfish Hosea is. Why? Because he's a baby. He's ignorant. But when he's 12 and he says, all I want you to do is change my diaper and get me a bottle. We got a problem, Houston. Why? Because he knows better. You understand? So ignorance is one thing. But when you're supposed to know, it's another thing. So sin, apart from the law, was still going on, but everyone was ignorant. We're all like little babies. Then the law comes and says, here's how things are to be. And then all of a sudden it's like, "Uh uh-oh, we all recognize and realize, wait a minute, we shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be acting this way. That's what the law does. It brings out... It brings out the transgressions that all of us struggle with. Now look at uh, how the law comes through a mediator. Moses, look at verse 20. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promise of God? Paul says, certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, then truly righteousness would have been given by the law. In other words, if the law could bring about righteousness, if following the law could make you righteous, then wouldn't that have happened over all of these years? Wouldn't there be all of these uh, accounts, these Old Testament accounts of people who have been declared righteous because of their obedience to the law? But there's not. 
Why? Because it can't be. It doesn't make any sense. Now, think about just the law, the nature of the law in general. When God chooses to give the law, I mean, it's just so astonishing how we miss Satan blinds us from the details that we should see. God, God doesn't show up to the children of Israel and say, okay, here's the deal. You're in captivity to the Egyptians. And I know it's been a tough 400 years, but here's the thing. If you'll start following all these laws, when you finally get to like the 90 percentile, when you get really good, when you make the grade, I'm going to come and, you know, I'm going to come and, and save you and get you out of captivity. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He shows up to a bunch of enslaved people and he frees them. And he shows them how amazing he is by the way he frees them. And he does all these miraculous things. And after he's done all that, and they've marched across the Red Sea and everything's done. Then they get to Mount Sinai and he goes, now that I've shown that I've blessed you, apart from you doing anything, here's the law. Then what does he do? He goes, now, here's the law. Don't do this, 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 and this. And also, you need to give all of these sacrifices. Hello? Why? How is it that when the, when God gives the law, at the same time He gives the law, He gives the commandment to sacrifice animals? He's telling the people, you can't do the law. So I'm going to give you the law, but I'm also going to give you these sacrifices because you can't keep the law. It's impossible. So you're going to have to sacrifice, otherwise you're going to be guilty. So that's what you got to do. So the point is he proves himself to be gracious first, then he gives them the law. So it couldn't have been based on the, their ability to follow the law. And then when he gives them the law, he gives them a command to sacrifice because he's telling them, you can't do it. So I want you to understand, what is the purpose of the law? To show us how hopeless we are in our sin. You, me, and no one else can keep all the law. It is humanly impossible. That's the purpose of the law. So the law is not opposed to grace. The law is a grace of God. That's a blessing from God. That if we didn't have the law, we'd all be running around like babies in diapers. The law is what brings us to salvation. So that's the purpose of the law. Number three, what's the promise of the gospel? The promise of the gospel. Verse 22. But the scripture has confined all under sin. You see, there's our prison house terminology. That everyone's locked down under sin because they cannot succeed under the law. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Kept kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Now, what's he talking about? Well, he already told us. Look back in verse 19. He says, until the seed should come. Remember that? He says, not seeds, but the seed. Verse 16, he says, Abraham and his seed were the promises made to seeds, plural. No, he says, but to one, the seed who is Christ. So he's talking about the coming Christ, that the faith that will be revealed is Jesus who's yet to come. Now. When you, as a, as, a, as a new covenant, New Testament Christian, 
You come into church this morning, you've got this Bible in your hand that God's given you this amazing insight into His character and nature that will protect you from getting all tangled up in these crazy, wild ideas that men connive and come up with. You have that in your hand. All you got to do is open it and read it and it will show you everything that I'm telling you. When you get to the New Testament... The first thing you see, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the first thing you come to is this long list of names. Why? What is God doing opening this grand new testament with this list of names? The list of names is there to show you that Jesus Christ is in the lineage of who? Abraham. That he's showing you that he's the seed. He has come that the promise that was made to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That when when God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through your seed. That's what Matthew 1, 1 is saying. Ding, 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 ding. The seed is here. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, what does the Bible say about him? That he comes at the fullness of time, full of what? Grace and Truth. You see? That God, He wants you to know this. He wants to protect you from the danger of being trapped in in this legalism. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. He's the fulfillment of that. Why else would Jesus be in this dialogue with a group of Jews that are attacking him and saying that he's demon-possessed in John chapter 8? And then notice what Jesus, he makes this statement in John eight fifty six. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day that he saw it and was glad. To which they respond, well, you must be demon-possessed. What are you talking about? Abraham's been dead for hundreds of years. Jesus is saying, Abraham rejoiced when I came. You know why? Because he knew that he knew that I'm the seed, I'm the one, that that's the whole point of me being here. So then Paul says in verse 24 of our text, he says, therefore, the law was our guardian. It was our teacher. It was our tutor. It came to bring us to Christ, that the reason for the law was to illustrate our inability to be sinless on our own, that no man, woman or child could stand before God and say, I've done it. I've achieved it. I'm innocent. I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't broken in. That's what the law is there for. And that, yes, God could have made the law 50 billion chapters long. But there wasn't a point because the little bit that he gave us was unkeepable. And what did humanity do in the years between the time they got the law and the time Christ came as a fulfillment of the promise? They spent all their time adding to the law. So when Jesus gets there, they're so confused. They don't even know which law was from God and which law was from man. You see, that's what we don't want to do. We want to stick with what God says. What God has declared to be true. He says, Paul says in verse 34, Therefore the law as our guardian came to bring us to Christ. Why? That we would be justified, declared righteous by faith. See, no works, no effort, no merit, no earning. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He's the fulfillment of the promise that began everything. The reason you can sit here today, the reason if you're here today and you know in your heart, you see, you've been transformed. 
by the radical grace of God that you've responded to in faith, you know, the people sitting around you know, you're not the person you used to be. Why? Not because you worked real hard. Not because you changed yourself. But because... What happens when you come in contact with the grace of God and respond in faith to that grace? It turns your life upside down. But you don't become perfect. You don't become perfect. We know that for sure. But what happens? Jesus is sufficient. Because He lived the perfect life that we could never live. So that all of, so that where we are, everything we've done, prior to salvation, and everything we've yet to do is all covered by the blood of Christ. But what, what you have to understand is, when I say what you're yet to do, doesn't that, it's not some liberty to go out and do whatever you want to do. It's that what you're yet to do, believe it or not, that even in the midst of being so gracious and good to us, we still are unable to just day in and day out be pleasing unto God apart from Jesus. That's why He's so important. You see, every day, every day, I have spent months swimming in the ocean of the grace of the book of Galatians. That's all I've been thinking about for months. And every day I fail God. And it breaks my heart. Because as much as I know about the grace of God, I think, Lord, I should be so much better at this. But then it reminds me, I can't. I can never be perfect. Never. And praise God, because of my Savior, I'm not under the law. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 10? He says, for Christ is the end of the law. He's the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You see, I'm not under that law anymore. That's why I can't be condemned anymore. Because I'm in Christ. That the one who never knew sin became sin for me. That I could be the righteousness of God. That He did it all. That I was asleep when He made the covenant. I wasn't wasn't looking for Him when He found me. But He found me and redeemed me and saved me. And the law just reminds me of how much I needed that and how grateful I am for that. And that those two don't oppose each other. That God is a righteous God. You see, that's the problem. We get tangled up about the the law of God. And so we start, start thinking like, oh, you know, but you can't ignore the law of God, but you can't just go over here with grace because great isn't grace uh, just doesn't that counter uh, the law and doesn't law counter grace? No, that's who God's always been. That's who he is today. Exodus 34, this will come up on the screen, then I'm done. Remember in Exodus 34, that's where Moses is with God on the mountain. He says to God, show me your glory. Remember that? And he hides in the cleft of the rock. And so he can see the glory of God passing before him. In verse 6, here's what the Bible says. And the Lord passed before him. And here's what God says. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But that's not all he says. Then God says, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
But don't you see, God is always both. Yes, He is the most gracious, amazing God to come and be merciful to us and bestow grace upon us. But do not be mistaken. He will not overlook sin. That every sin must be accounted for. It must be paid for. Every sin. And so if you're here this morning, here's how you should respond to everything that I've said. You should ask yourself the question, do I believe God? Do I believe what God has promised? And if the answer is yes, then does my life bear the marks that I believe what God has said. Because if it doesn't, you may need to do some investigating. You see, because it wasn't accounted under righteousness to Abraham just because he said, yeah, God, I believe you, and then walked away and stayed in Ur. It was accounted unto him. Righteousness, because he responded to God in obedience. You understand? The grace of God, the most graceful, loving God you can ever imagine is laying out the welcome mat for you this morning. And He's saying, come. Be my son. Be my daughter. Know me. Love me. Fellowship with me. But make no mistake about it. I will not overlook any sin. So don't let anyone deceive you. Don't let anyone bewitch you. You can't earn your way there. Dear God, if any of you have been in church year after year after year, and you've been striving and striving to to reach some level of obedience so that God would be pleased with you, this morning the gospel is saying, come child and be free from that. You can never earn it. You can't merit your way there. It comes to those who see the radical grace of God and merely respond in faith and are transformed. Let's stand by our heads. Father, we just pause in this moment of invitation, Lord God, to respond to that which you have shown us. And Father God, I thank you for your grace. And I thank you for the opportunity that this morning presents for all of us. God, for some of us to just rejoice in the reality, afresh and anew, of how incredible you have been to us in salvation. Lord, thank you. Thank you for being ever consistent from beginning to end, that always always revealing yourself and responding to people consistently in a grace-filled way. Lord, thank you for that. Father, for some of us here, it's about responding to to what you've already accomplished in their lives. That this morning, they they would say, Lord, I'm here and I have heard this and I am the one who knows the radical nature of your grace. It has been poured out on my life. But I have not responded to you in obedience. That I need to be baptized. And I've known that, but I've put that off and I need to do that. Lord, thank you that this morning that step can be made. Thank you, Lord. 
For some, it's, God, I know, we've known for some time that you're calling us to, to plan our life here amongst this people. To be a part of this church. But we've just put it off. We've hesitated. We've, but Lord, now we know you're speaking to our heart that right now is the time that you're saying respond to this grace that has been shown you. To what God is telling you to do. Thank you for that, Lord. And God, for those here who are struggling, who are perilously sinking in the quicksand of doubt and confusion about where they are with you, Lord God. Father God, will you just give them peace right now? That you are not the author of confusion. That you are not a God who hides yourself, but you delight in revealing yourself to men and women. And so, Lord, will you knock on the door of their heart? Will you draw them unto yourself this morning? Will you call... Call those who have yet to be your children home. Say, come and experience what it's like to be utterly and completely known and yet utterly and completely accepted. Thank you, Lord, for the peace that marks the life of those who know you as Savior. We give you praise for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen.